Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. This is Kurt Rappencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. National parks are places where we recreate, refresh our brains, and exercise our bodies. They're where we learn about history and culture, and in many cases, where we watch wildlife roam without constraints. But they're also entities with occasional headaches. This past week, we told you about the noise washing across Olympic National Park from Navy jets on training missions, concerns that a caribou captive breeding effort at Jasper National Park in Canada is failing, and that national parks in California have had to close campgrounds and lodges due to the coronavirus pandemic. But there was good news, too. We let you know that a large private collection of century-old documents from the desk of civil rights icon Maggie Lena Walker is now open to the public, that Voyagers National Park has been designated as an international dark sky park, and that restoration work on Flattop Manor along the Blue Ridge Parkway has gotten underway, thanks in large part to the Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation. You can find those and other stories about national parks and protected areas at nationalparkstraveler.org. This week's show is going to the birds. Counting birds, that is. What with the annual Audubon Christmas bird count officially kicking off Monday and running through January 5th. We sat down with Jeff LeBaron, who long has overseen the annual counting for the National Audubon Society, to discuss the program. Did you know, for instance, that the predecessor of this annual celebration of birds was actually a hunting competition to see how many birds could be killed? We all aspire to leave a legacy of good, right? One way or the other, our parks and public lands are all of our legacies. Join Wild Tributes for the Parks community with apparel that pays tribute to where legacy roams. Together, we can and will make a difference for the parks. Join us at wildtribute.com. Western National Parks Association is a nonprofit education partner of the National Park Service. WNPA supports parks across the West, developing products, services, and programs that enhance the visitor experience, understanding, and appreciation of national parks. Learn more at WNPA.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. Year-end is here. That means it's time for the annual Audubon Christmas Bird Count. This is probably the longest-running citizen science project in the country's history. This year's count, the 121st, technically runs from Monday, December 14th through January 5th, 2021. But of course, you can head out into the National Park System to count birds any time of year. This year's counting likely will be affected by COVID-19, as you might encounter guidelines or restrictions that are designed to prevent the spread of the disease, and some local counts might even be canceled. 
Now, to understand some of the background of this annual account and possibly learn how COVID-19 might be impacting it, and to help point out some of the bird species you might look for in the parks, we're joined today by Jeff LeBaron, the Christmas Bird Count Director for the National Audubon Society. Welcome to The Traveler, Jeff. Glad to be here, Kurt. Before we really get into the the bird count this year, it's got some interesting background. I mean, it actually um, was spun off from a Christmas bird hunt, I guess you could say. It was called the side hunt? Yeah, in the late 1800s, there or during the 1800s, there was a, a holiday tradition called the side hunt, where people would choose sides and hunt. And whoever brought in the biggest pile of feathered and furred quarry won, won the side hunt for that year. And it was probably started as a way of supplying, you know, fare for the holiday meal. In the late 20th century in the, in the toward the uh, around 1900 late 1800s there was a growing awareness of the need for conservation that wildlife was not the unlimited resource that people had been thinking it was and uh, the millinery trade uh, the, the the taking of birds for women's hats and fashion uh, was decimating uh, colonial nesting water birds you know, especially herons and egrets and also some of the seabirds like terns and Frank Chapman, who was an ornithologist at the American Museum of Natural History at the time, also happened to fortunately have his own publication called Bird Lore. It was his own magazine that he was publishing. And he suggested, he proposed to his readers that people go out that upcoming season for Christmas Day of 1900 and do a Christmas bird, as he said then, census rather than a Christmas bird hunt. And that that season, there were 27 people in 25 different locations across the continent uh, that went out and actually counted birds on Christmas Day rather than shooting them. One of the amazing things that Frank Chapman did along with just proposing the, the, the census rather than the hunt was he also decided that people should keep track of the, um, the amount of effort, the time and distance that they expended to count the birds that they did. So even from year one, actually, if people wanted to analyze the data back that far, they can actually look at the effort-weighted data because theoretically more people in more areas are going to count more birds, even if the number of birds isn't changing. So from the 27 people in 25 locations that first year, uh, last season we had over almost 2,500, no, 2,650 Uh, different Christmas bird counts uh, across the hemisphere, actually. It's grown in over 82,000 observers involved. Oh. Uh, So it's it's become, it's now in every state in the the United States, including Hawaii. Um, It's in every province in Canada. We have counts in Bermuda, throughout the Caribbean, throughout Latin America. And in Latin America, especially Mexico and Colombia, there are a lot of Christmas bird counts that are done. So it's, it's really, it's a growing thing and it's become a real holiday tradition for just about everybody that does it. Yeah, it, re- it really has evolved into an incredible event. And uh, I'm ashamed to say, though, that my parents never got me involved with the Christmas count when I was growing up. And so my birding skills are sadly lacking. That said, of course, it's not too late for me. And, and certainly it's a great opportunity to connect youngsters with nature, right? And during these uh, somewhat depressing days of, of COVID, birding can make you happy. Absolutely. That is that is true. I think uh, birding has kept many of us who are birders somewhat sane since March, at least, maybe just in general, because uh, mm-hmm. birds have this amazing ability to just engage a human's imagination and, and joy. Um, you know, they fly, they sing, they're pretty. 
Some of them undertake these incredible migrations that just seem almost impossible to, for them to be able to do physiologically. But the other thing about birds that's really, really cool is just about any, any human on the face of this earth could go outside right now today and find a bird. The possible exception is people, researchers at South Pole Station, where there are occasionally birds, but not probably regularly. But literally, any if you're on the ocean, if you're in the desert, if you're in the mountains, if you're in a city, anywhere you go outside at this point, or even look out your window, you're likely to be able to see or at least hear a bird. And I don't, I'm not sure there's any other life form that you can say that about without, you know, in delving into insects and, you know, looking, you know, for microorganisms and stuff like that in the dirt. So that's, they're there, they're available, they're in our yards, and they really have the ability to engage us in becoming aware and caring for conservation. Right, right. Now, um, as you said, it's really turned into a, um, a hemispheric project. What do you do with all the data that's collected? All the data that are turned in, and, and, and including we computerized the entire 100-year database after the 100th CBC in, in 1999, are in the uh, Audubon's Christmas Bird Count database. And researchers, when I first, I'm, I've been in charge of the Christmas Bird Count since 1987. Wow. And during that time, it was really only Audubon researchers and people at Patuxent Wildlife Research Center who also managed the breeding bird survey there who really understood that what we were then calling citizen science data sets really uh, do include some meaningful data. And a lot of really interesting and cool stuff to be able to figure out by looking at, um, we're, now, we're now, Audubon's shifted over to using the term community science away from citizen science. When I first started, there was a real reluctance by researchers to utilize the Christmas bird count or other community science data sets because they were afraid of all the sort of inherent wobble and, and uncertainty within the database in terms of, you know, year to year, the weather can affect things dramatically during the count period. The weather leading up to the count period very much affects where species are and in what numbers during the count period. And also just there are, you know, 50 to 80,000 people out there doing the Christmas bird count. And how does somebody, how does a researcher know that, Oh, the, you know, the group in, in Boulder has the same skill set as the people in Park City or Anchorage or Boston or Bogota. Right. Um, and so that, that observer variability in the weather things especially concerned researchers in terms of being able to do analyses with the data. But the beauty of the Christmas bird count is that even though the people in Boston are different from the people in Miami and blah, 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 it's the same people in each area that are doing it in the same way at the same time of year and exactly the same routes every year. So there's a real consistency over time within each circle. What we also tend to do with Christmas bird count data is we, um, we don't look at this year versus last year. We look at the, the 2010s to the 20 aughts to the 1990 uh, to the you know 2000s to the 90s to the 80s. So we look at it in decade long chunks. And that really factors out the weather because you know generally within a decade, all the crazy weather that's going to happen during this time of you know year in the, in the early winter or late tail end of the fall migration, which is really what it is, that will have evened out. So there really is amazingly good trend data that are, are very usable and, and valuable within the Christmas bird count data set. And because of its scope, covering all of North America, plus increasingly in Latin America and the Caribbean, 
there's the, between the geographic coverage and the, and the length of time that the Christmas bird count has been done, there really isn't another survey out there like that, at least in the Americas. The breeding bird survey is the one we have to, to look at what's been going on in the, in the breeding season because it's done in June. But the BBS was started by Patuxent in the, in the 1960s by Chan Robbins. Mm-hmm. And Chan himself was just a, a, a tremendously involved with the Christmas bird count. And, you know, he, he actually began his involvement with the, the Christmas bird count in 1934, which interestingly was the year that uh, Frank Chapman, who started the program, retired. Um, so Frank Chapman was involved with the CBC from the first year to the 34th. Chan Robbins started in 1934 and participated and compiled every year until his death two years ago. Hmm. So until Chan died recently, uh, we could measure the entire span of over a century of the CBC and the direct involvement of two people. Wow, that is amazing. What, what trends are being noticed in terms of uh, what bird species are turning up, where they're turning up, how many are turning up? Because not only are we collecting the effort in the bird data, we're also collecting weather data during the Christmas bird count. That's people also submit their, you know, their, their summary of the weather data for each of the counts. So we're able to track, plus there's a lot of other data sources for how the early winter period is actually shifting and the early winter is moderating on a sort of a continental basis. What we can look at, did look at in 2006 with the Christmas bird count is where have, how have species shifted their, well, initially, have they, and if they have, where and how much have they shifted their ranges over that, the the 60 years, basically, from the 50s to the 2010s or the 2000s when we were, when we did that analysis. And very clearly, there were over 200 species that have shifted their range as much as 200 miles northward and Mm -hmm. also inland away from the coast during that 60-year period. So by looking at the Christmas bird count, we could actually document how species are shifting their ranges in a moderating winter climate. What the CBC has enabled us to do, both in 2014 when we did our first um, uh, climate study, and then also uh, 2019 uh, when we released the second version, which is called Survival by Degrees, is we did predictive modeling based on the three basic uh, changes in, in you know, climate change scenarios um, that are out there and looked at where our species, are, based on how the, we know that they're shifting, looking at the Christmas bird count in a, in a moderating climate, where are they likely to need to go over the next 20 to 80 years? And it's really interesting. The CBC actually en- enabled us to start to do the, that modeling and predict how things are likely to be changing and what people might be able to do to help actually help address that. Right, right. So I imagine if uh, you had one individual who was uh, very true to the annual bird count and, and did it over a number of decades, their personal records of the species they saw could vary greatly from the, the beginning to, to more recently. Those of us that have been doing them for a long time definitely notice that. And I think it's not just with the CBC, but also even just people who go out and patch birding is becoming more more popular increasingly, and especially in, in this COVID year, where really all we can do is go out to our local patch and bird. And we really, we do start to see, we notice the changes in, in the weather and Certainly development and habitat are changing, but also just the changes in the species um, in the, over time in a given place. One specific, you ask, how, how are things changing? Many species like robins um, and bluebirds have greatly shifted their center of abundance northward and inland over the last century. Um, they're, they're basically 
they're not long distance migrants, they're medium distance migrants, and they only really go as far south as they have to. So if if they don't have to go, you know, if, if you're a, a bluebird breeding in, in New England, if you can just find your local patch or go to the coast, why should you, you know, why should you go down to North Carolina for the winter? It's not worth the energy. Um, so some species like robins and bluebirds and stuff like that are actually shifting their ranges and, and actually increasing on the Christmas bird count. We're also starting to see um, an increasing number of the neotropical migrant species, the birds that are supposed to be in Latin America and the Caribbean for the winter, that are beginning to linger in small numbers on Christmas bird counts in the mainland of North America. That, that's definitely a pattern that's starting to happen. But other species are, are, are fading northward or fading out for reasons that are somewhat unknown. There's a bird called the great cormorant that we, uh, one of the counts that I do usually, I won't be able to this year because it's in Rhode Island and I'm in Massachusetts, is the Newport-Westport count down there um, in, and I'm sort of in the, the Saconet Point, Little Compton area. And we have, we have the all-time high species, number of great cormorants that were ever tallied over 120 years on that count back in the 1980s. Um, it was somewhere around 2,600 birds, I think. Last season, in the 120th Christmas bird count, we also had the annual high count for great cormorant, and I believe the number was 48. So hmm. the numbers of great cormorants have declined tremendously along the East Coast. Um, it's a more, probably globally, it's, I, don't, I, I don't know what the numbers are globally. Um, it has a, a huge range across Eurasia as well. But it, this is one of the species that something is happening and, and it is shifting its ranges or just declining in numbers, uh, at least as, as tallied on the Christmas bird count. Yeah. Um, to use what might be uh, an apropos um, um, phrase, are, are the birds, the canaries in the coal mine, so to speak, for climate change? Is that, is that what's driving their, their redistribution? Birds are definitely the proverbial canary in the coal mine. They're a wonderful indicator of the quality environment of the environment that we all exist in. Um, so if birds are not doing well, the chances are pretty good that all of us are not going to do very well, at least for, you know, in the, in the long term. One of the groups of birds that we're most worried about right now are what, what's called the aerial insectivores, the ones that catch insects on the wing. There's, you know, I don't know if you've heard about the big discussion about the insect apocalypse in, in Europe that's been documented where something like 70% of the volume biomass of insects has declined in the last couple of decades over there. And that's tremendously affecting species like swallows and night jars and, and things like that that are, and flycatchers that are, their whole life cycle is based on catching insects on the wing. Hmm. Um, and if those insects are tanking, it's, it's you know, these birds, they don't have, they've evolved to eat, consume flying insects so that um, they don't really have the physiological ability to shift their diet to something else. So they're, um, they're as a group, they're one of the three groups of species globally that are declining the most. Wow. Well, um, in terms of shifting, I know a couple of years ago, um, Audubon and the National Park Service came out with a, a report um, discussing where these bird shifts are happening and where they might happen um, in the years to come. And, and one of the things that, that stuck in my mind uh, is that the, the Grand Canyon, um, the, the climate there will change, so it will be potentially suitable for anhingas, which we're used to seeing in Everglades and, and Big Cypress National Preserve. 
the the national parks briefs that we did was an outgrowth of of the sort of the combination of the of the two uh, climate studies that we did, and and that's exactly right. We took we we did more specific geographic analysis for the national parks based on the modeling that we we had done for the species that are uh, that live in the in the parks, in like in Rocky Mountain National Park. One of the things that's going to be very interesting over time, you know. The species that are most at risk, not just birds, but everything, are the critters that exist or the life forms that exist at the extreme ends or the top and the bottom. So, you know, we're already seeing tremendous changes in what's happening to birds and other wildlife in the Arctic. Um, you know, people talk about the polar bears and all that kind of stuff. But what people don't necessarily think about is mountaintop species, the birds mm -hmm. that are in the tundra environments on a continental landmass at the top of the mountains. And Rocky Mountain National Park in Colorado is one of the places, it is essentially the core of the range of a bird called the rosy finch. And um, that's it, it, a species that's almost an, entirely endemic to Colorado, um, at least as a, as a breeder. They do breed in very northern New Mexico, and then they also move south a little bit. But it's a bird that basically lives, it needs the edges of snow fields in the tundra regions of the high Rockies. And there are other uh, species of, of rosy finch. There's a black rosy finch and a gray crowned rosy finch. And these species are specifically adapted to that environment. It's a very narrow niche that they have in their needs. And what's happening, of course, is, is you know, as, as things are moving, as, as things are warming, the biomes, the habitats are, are creeping up the mountains. And, you know, it will probably come to the time when the tops of the mountains in Rocky Mountain National Park aren't tundra anymore. And once you're at the top and your habitat disappears, there's no place to go. And that's the same scenario, basically, as birds that live at the edge of the Arctic Ocean in the north and places like that. It's, 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 the moderating climate is a real challenge to species that are highly specialized in any aspect of, of their life cycle. Yeah, yeah. We're talking today with Jeff LeBaron, the Christmas Bird Count Director for National Audubon Society. We're going to take a short break, and when we return, we're going to look out across the national park system and where there might be some uh, great um, birding this winter. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the National Park System for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It is an environmental learning center, training center, conference center, and leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. 
Learn more at ncascades.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. All right, we're back now with Jeff LeBaron, the Christmas Bird Count Director for National Audubon Society, and talking about the uh, Christmas uh, annual Christmas Bird Count, which starts Monday, the 14th. Jeff, looking out across the national park system, there are a lot of places people can get involved with the Christmas Bird Count. If we spared no expense and could miraculously travel anywhere in the country in the blink of an eye, any thoughts where the best Christmas birding is in the park system? <laughs> I think it depends what you want to see because there's so many absolutely fabulous places in the park system. If you, if you want water birds, go to Everglades national park. And you know, the, 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 actually one of the cool things about South Florida is that, you know, the birds are breeding down there potentially mm -hmm. during the Christmas bird count period. So it's, 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 it's a different flavor than if you went to Yellowstone or Denali or Acadia. I mean, it's, it's, um, they're, each species, each park has its own host of species that are really wonderful and, and interesting and engaging. And, um, you know, for, for birders, I know, you know, I, I think there's probably a group of birders out there that are trying to tick off their favorite birds in every park. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. And of course, with Everglades, um, South Florida, it's, it's the dry season. And so you've got the birds congregating around uh, the water holes that exist uh, along with their, their, their breeding yeah, yeah, it's just, it's a, people, I think a lot of people have, I went to school at the University of Miami in Florida, and, and I, I got down into the Everglades whenever I could, because I just, I loved it down there, but, you know, the, I think the, the vision that some people have about the swampy Everglades is such, such a different reality than it really is, it's actually a grassland, mm -hmm. it's a wet grassland that has swampy pockets in it, and, you know, you go, you drive the road, and it's, you know, you get to Dogleg Pass, or whatever it's called, elevation eight feet, <laughs> right, right. The highest point in the park, or maybe it's six, but uh, it's quite a different experience than going up to the top at, top at Rocky Mountain National Park, where you're over yeah, 12. Yeah, for sure. Which for you can't sure. do that on the Christmas count, because the roads are the road gets closed to go up to the top. But unless you're really hardy and want to ski or snowshoe up uh, Trail Ridge Road, that's true. <laughs> yeah. Most unusual species. I mean, uh, species come and go throughout the season, so I, I would imagine you might encounter different species in the the winter months than you would in the summer. Definitely, um, the the a lot of what a lot of people focus on in the winter are the winter raptors. Um, they're they're the showier, more th spectacular things like snowy owls and rough-legged hawks and um, that that move down from the the northern regions in the tundra in varying numbers annually. Uh, the, with the snowy owls in particular, it's a, it's a fascinating species and you know, they're, they're tied to breeding on the tundra and they're tied to the cycles of lemmings up um, in, the, in the Arctic tundra. And so it, it's, it's a bit of an unknown quantity as to actually what the population is of snowy owls in 
the Arctic in the North American Arctic because snowy owls also found circumpolar in the, in the Arctic regions. But the likelihood is that the population of snowy owls in the North American Arctic is significantly less than it was estimated to be. Because it turns out that many of the populations of snowies just follow where the uptick in the, in the lemming populations are. So it, you might have one or two primary populations in, North, in the Arctic of North America that just follow from you know, Barrow, Alaska over to, you know, the, you know, the eastern edges of Nunavut um, in, in Arctic Canada, um, just based on or down to like the very southern edge of the tundra in northern Quebec. And that's what happened a few years back. We had the record flight of snowy owls ever on a CBC that winter where, I mean, there was snow owl. There was one that ended up in Bermuda. They had one in Florida. And there were more, I mean, there were record, well over a thousand snowy owls tallied that year on Christmas bird counts. And sometimes what drives owl, things like the owls or the raptors are also the winter finches, the boreal species that breed in the boreal forest. Oftentimes what drives them is a lack of food resources. But in this particular instance, and that is true with snowy owls, if there's a, a, a general sort of widespread lack of lemmings, then a lot of the birds will move south to, in search of food. Uh, during the winter months. But when there's a bumper crop of uh, lemmings, which is what happened in, south, in the uh, you know, Arctic regions, southern Arctic regions of, of Quebec that year, tremendous numbers of, of young snowy owls were produced. And those birds just kind of needed to move out of the territories where the, most of the adults were staying to the north and just move southward in huge numbers. You know, there were counts that had, you know, double digit, you know, tallies of, of snowy owls that winter. And they weren't necessarily stressed and starving. They were just moving because there were so many of them and they just needed to go where there were some, you know, fewer snowy owls than further north. So yeah. it was a really interesting situation uh, during that winter. Yeah. No, I bet. I bet. I know they were um, spotted at Cape Hatteras National Seashore and Cape Cod National Seashore. And uh, it was a real treat if you were out there and got to see one. Yeah. In doing a little research on parks and birding, um, I see that the National Parks Conservation Association says Point Reyes National Seashore in California has uh, the most recorded bird species with 405. Um, that doesn't mean that if you head out to Point Reyes in the next few weeks, you're going to have a chance of spotting 405 now, does it? No, unfortunately not. <laughs> that's that's the, the year-round all along total, you know, including, you know, crazy things from Siberia that have shown up there once or twice, at, you know, you know, so that 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 total species uh, list um, is is cumulative and year round over time. And certainly during the Christmas bird count, you wouldn't encounter a lot of the things that can show up there at other seasons. But the wonderful thing about Reyes, Point Reyes National Seashore is that you've got ocean, you've got cliffs, you've got marshland, you've got upland areas, you've got farmland, and you've got forested areas. There's a tremendous diversity of habitat within that area. And um, that really can boost the number of species that, that you can find on any day of the year, really, if you spend time there, but especially, you know, even on Christmas bird counts and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, the average number, I think we've figured it out one time, that, if you just average out all the Christmas bird counts across North America for, you know, one of the yardsticks that people measure the success of their count on any given year is by the number of species they manage to find. And there, there, I mean, there have been counts that have been done in the high Arctic where people went out for three hours in twilight and didn't find a bird. 
Mm-hmm. So the species total was zero. There was one count that was done for 15 or 20 years at Prudhoe Bay, Alaska, where the only species they ever had was common raven. Hmm. But that was a really cool area because theoretically one year you could go out and double your species total because there are <laughs> other species that are up there in the winter. They just never managed to find one at Prudhoe Bay on the count. Then we have the counts like in this very southern edges and the coastal areas like Point Reyes and many of the other Southern California counts, but also the Gulf Coast of Texas where they regularly get 200 or more species on a Christmas bird count. But the wow. average number of species probably total, if you average it uh, continent-wide, is you know, 75 or 80. And one of the neat things, we also have counts in Latin America. And you know, the, some of the counts in Ecuador and Colombia and um, you know, Peru and places like that can get four to 500 species of birds hmm. on a Christmas bird count. But many of those species are only represented by one individual and usually down there when you're you know birding in the cloud forest it might only be heard so in fact even though the species diversity is incredibly high down there the number of individuals tallied is very low and whereas up here you may only get you know even if you're on a count that only has 15 or 20 or 30 species the likelihood is that you're you're encountering hundreds if not thousands of birds during the day so the diversity is much lower, but the population levels are much higher up here. So even if you're out and not quite seeing as many birds, you're seeing, I mean, as many species of birds, you're definitely seeing birds. Yeah. So our, our rules, um, do, do you, the people who lead these Christmas bird counts, are they supposed to adhere to not using recorders or, or bird calls with the, they, they make themselves to attract species? Well, there are certainly, I mean, there is a method in terms of rules in general. There's a definite methodology and, and rules of the Christmas bird count that, that need to be attended to. Each Christmas count is a 15-mile diameter circle. Only birds within the count circle on count day are, are tallied. Most circles have, area, have uh, uh, several different areas within them that are covered by uh, area groups that have specific routes that they take. And once they're done with their area, they don't just necessarily keep birding around the whole rest of the area. They're responsible for tallying the birds in their area because we want to try to make sure that we're minimizing the possibility of double counting and definitely only counting birds within the circle. It actually, for the Christmas bird count, it it's, it is an optional, pe- people do have the option of u- of utilizing attractive no- noise. Really? So um, you, I mean, including you know, you know, pishing at birds, the psh, psh kind of thing that people do, which is can be as effective as anything in, in attracting chickadees. And once you have a flock of chickadees or whatever around you, that's going to bring in everything else because they're just interested. But because we're in the non-breeding season for the vast majority of species and the vast majority of the areas that are covered by Christmas bird counts, it's not like the breeding bird survey where it's absolutely forbidden to use any sort of attractive noise. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't, it needs to be done. If people do it, it needs to be done judiciously. You don't want to be just spending all day blasting, you know, chickadee calls or, or owl screech owl tapes at, at you know, the, all the birds everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is something that is used on some Christmas counts. What the important thing is, if it's used and it's used judiciously, it's better to keep, to be consistent from year to year to year, how much it's done. We don't want to have a season where all of a sudden, you know, half the people out there start using um, their, you know, iPhones to play owl vocalizations at flocks of birds or thickets, and then they stop doing it in in future years. Because we like the methodology as well as the coverage to be uniform over time in a given Christmas bird count. Right, right. You don't want to skew, skew the results from year to year. Right. 
Do you um, head out to, to national parks for your Christmas bird count, or do you just go in your backyard, so to speak? I mean, you're, you're not too far from Cape Cod National Seashore, I believe, which is a, a pretty good birding area. It can be a wonderful area. It's especially one of the, it can be one of the fabulous places for, for seabirds, for alcids, the puffin uh, relatives. Uh, dovekey, th- this fall has been a really amazing year out there for for dovekeys and razorbills and both kinds of mervs. And I mean, it's just been, the weather conditions have pushed the, the alcids that breed in the Western North Atlantic further inland than they do some years. And there is actually a, a, an offshore count. Uh, the Stellwagen Bank National Marine Sanctuary funds a, 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 an actual, that's probably the best run or most carefully run pelagic count that's ever been conducted for, for Christmas bird count because hmm. uh, they have waypoints and specific. Uh, so it's very, it's a neat count and they get a lot of good stuff. But yeah, unfortunately, I don't, I'm far enough from the way from the coast. I'm in Western Massachusetts that I don't, I don't get out there as often as I would like to. So the counts that I do is I live, our house is right on the edge of the Northampton, Massachusetts circle, although my yard is somebody else's territory. So I don't count the birds in my yard, um, but my my area is is adjacent to uh, us here where where there's a, a, a Massachusetts Audubon Society sanctuary. Mm-hmm. So I spent the whole I spend the whole day on foot uh, at the Graves Farm Wildlife Sanctuary uh, within the Northampton circle. Normally, as I mentioned, I do go down to Rhode Island and I do. Um, I don't go to national parks, but I, I do go to the Ninigrit National Wildlife Refuge, uh, usually in South County, Rhode Island. But um, because of the travel restrictions, I won't be able to do that this year. Yeah, yeah, it's a challenge for everybody, I'm sure. Now, returning to any any trends that the Christmas bird count has revealed um, and the recent news that we've lost billions of birds over the last 50 years, this annual event must be extremely valuable in taking the pulse, if you will, of how nature is doing out there. It, it really is, and I think it's becoming increasingly important in that respect. Um, one of the things that, and I mentioned this in my summary that was just sent out yesterday, actually, to our, our community science network from last year. In the 33 years I've been in charge of the Christmas bird count, the number of birds tallied, the total number of birds tallied, has been dramatically declining, even though the effort and the area of coverage has dramatically increased. So there are over a thousand more Christmas bird counts that are done and probably almost twice as many people involved now as there were in 1987 when I started. In those first few years, we were normally tallying every, all counts everywhere would tally 75 to 100 million birds all told. Hmm. Last year, last season, the total number of birds tallied was just over 42 million. The year prior to that, which at that point was the second lowest tally ever, the total was 48 million. And that's been the incremental thing for the, I would say the last 15 to 20 years as the number of birds each season, all told has declined that we're tallying. And you can't help but wonder, especially in, in, you know, in, in light of the 3 billion birds paper, what's going on. And the, the, the thing with the 3 billion birds paper is it was, they were looking at just the total biomass of birds declined. They don't, they, they, it, it wasn't possible to actually estimate what groups or what's, especially what species um, were mostly represented in that decline. With the Christmas bird count, we can do that. And this is one of the things that we are, we're very interested in doing, hopefully this year, is taking a deep dive into the Christmas bird count results over the last, well, 
probably 120 years, um, but at least from the last 50 to 70 years. And we should be able to document if it's an across the board decline, or if there are certain groups of birds that are tallied on the Christmas bird counts that are ones that are the primary cause of those declines in numbers. And I wonder if it has to do with um, com com communally roosting birds uh, that, you know, like blackbirds and starlings and grackles and robins uh, that, that winter in these tremendous roosts that can be in the millions of birds over time. And the, the challenge with the, uh, the communally roosting species is if your roost is within the count circle, you get these incredible numbers. Um, there was one count one year that, one count, remember I said that the average number was sort of 75 to 100 million birds for all counts every year. There was one count one year in Pine Prairie, Louisiana, I think it was in the 88th Christmas bird count where they had on that one count 103 million birds. Wow. They had 53 million red-winged blackbirds just on that one count. Yeah. That's amazing. And That's amazing. they were the thing is they were trained wildlife biologists in Louisiana that knew how to how to basically uh, you know you're estimating number you're not counting one two three four five up to 103 million I can assure you of that. So you're but they're they're trained in estimating tremendous numbers of birds coming in to roost. That if that roost happened to be outside the count circle that year, that number would have been nothing like that. So, you know, that's one of the issues with these roosting species. If the roosts happen to be outside the count circle, we don't get the primary core. But in 20 years, you would think that some circle somewhere is going to have those roosts contained with them, within them. And so, you know, at least in the recent 20 years or so that we haven't had many of those big roosts included in the circle. So I wonder, I wonder if the blackbirds and things like that are, are one of the things that are contributing to a lot of the drop in numbers. Yeah. Yeah. Be interesting to tease that out. Is there, um, on your website, are, are these reports, is this data available for the general public to take a look and, and see the trends? Absolutely. We, I mean, you can, there's a bunch of different ways you can look It's christmasbirdcount.org is probably the easiest thing to remember to get to the, 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 the CBC website. And we've got um, a number of different ways that the public can, can look at and download the results. Um, we have a current year by species, current year by count, if you want to just look at, you know, where, where were the snowy owls this winter or last winter, and, or what happened on the Rocky Mountain National Park count. You can look at it that way. You can also look at historical results by species or by count. And then you, you put in, you know, your area or your state or your species or whatever you want or the count you're interested in and give it a date range and it'll give you all the results for that, whatever your inquiry was over time. We also, the, the new feature that we have, which is really exciting because for years, Audubon has been generating trend data from the Christmas bird count, which is what we use for all these other analyses. But it wasn't, it was, you know, we were, we, we were able to give it to researchers, but we hadn't made the node basically to, to display it to the public. What we now have is the Christmas bird count trends viewer um, all right on the Christmas count website. Um, it's one of the main buttons on, on the website and you can go and it, it you can search on area or species or, you know, time interval or whatever, and it will present you with the annually updated now trend data for whatever it is that your inquiry is. And it's, it's pretty interesting to look at that yeah. way. And again, you can download those data as well. Yeah, that's great. Well, Jeff, thanks so much for uh, sharing your insights on the, the Christmas bird count and the history. And uh, it, it'll definitely be uh, interesting to watch the trends going forward and, and hopefully um, things will turn around a little bit. 
Yep. And this this could be a really interesting year just to, you know, with all the changes that are likely with COVID. I think that one of the aspects, one of the ways that people contribute on Christmas bird counts if they live in a CBC circle is to be able to count the birds at their feeders. And I think that uh, this year, the feeder watching component of the Christmas bird count is going to be especially important. And that in itself will be a really interesting thing to look at and compare the results this year to a regular Christmas bird count with more effort uh, dedicated toward being out in the field. So it's going to continue to be an interesting year. <laughs> yeah. Thankfully, there's only a few weeks left. Right. Well, Jeff, Jeff, uh, hope you have a happy holiday season and good birding out there. Thank you. You too, Kurt. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. Next week, we'll be talking with Cape Lookout National Seashore Superintendent Jeff West to learn about the park staff's efforts, both successful and unsuccessful, to save historic structures from the ravages of storms and time on the Outer Banks of North Carolina. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast series is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.